Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi everyone, so today I'm talking all about one of my favourite subjects, PCOS, with Melissa Groves. So Melissa is a specialist in women's health and she takes the focus off diet and weight loss and hones in on key nutrients by taking away restriction and not eliminating any foods or food groups to help normalise periods, remediate PCOS symptoms and optimise fertility. She also addresses the root cause of PCOS such as insulin resistance, inflammation, hormone and gut imbalances with food. In her new book, which is out tomorrow, it's called A Balanced Approach to PCOS. Melissa uses a functional medicine, food-first approach that combines holistic and lifestyle changes with evidence-based medicine. So it's set to release tomorrow, August 25th, 2020. And in this episode, we're gonna be discussing food and nutrition in a lot more detail. So her thoughts on food sensitivities and allergies and whether they're a big factor in her clients, things like blood sugar regulation, what that actually means, and the importance of the individual macronutrients, proteins, fats, and fiber or carbohydrates, particular nutrients to pay attention to for proper hormonal balance, Melissa's thoughts on fasting or time-restricted feeding for those with PCOS, organic food, whether it's worth the extra money, in her opinion, and whether she believes that plant-based, vegetarian or vegan diets are a good or bad idea. So lots that we cover in this episode. I'm excited to check out her book as well because my clients are always asking me for more more recipes and with some individuals, a restrictive diet isn't the best. I think that's for everyone. It should be as broad as possible, but there are some people who have certain conditions or food sensitivities where they have to limit themselves a little bit. So if you're someone who is just wanting to eat healthier and find recipes that your family can also eat and enjoy as well, um, I think this might be a great resource for you. So the links will be in the show notes for more from Melissa. You can find her on social media at the hormone dietitian. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Hi Melissa, I want to welcome you to the podcast. I'm so excited to chat all about PCOS, one of my favorite subjects with you today and on the subjects of nutrition and PCOS because you have a brand new book out tomorrow. So we're gonna dive into different subjects and answer some frequently asked questions from my listeners. But before we get into that, could you tell me a bit about your story? I don't think I'm familiar with of your journey, how you got interested in PCOS. Is this a condition that you have been diagnosed with personally? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me on. I'm excited that we, we got the chance to chat. Um, and no, I don't personally have PCOS. Um, I definitely have struggled with other hormone issues throughout my life, but PCOS is, is not one of them. Um, how I first got into PCOS was I was working in the practice of a functional medicine dietitian. Um, this is a second career for me. I, I went to school the first time around and I worked in New York City advertising as a writer for 15 years. And then I went back to school to become a dietitian. And my first job out was in the office of a functional medicine dietitian. And she sent me every client who wanted to lose weight. 
So when you're working from a functional medicine perspective, you're looking for that root cause because I would look at what they were eating and how much they were exercising. And I was like, something is not adding up here. Like, why are they not losing weight and gaining weight on this diet they're following? And what I would turn up through the deeper digging in the form of testing is that there was almost always some sort of hormone imbalance that was preventing them from losing weight. Either their cortisol was high or their insulin was high or, you know, their thyroid was low or they had this condition called PCOS, which, you know, I didn't really learn anything about in school. And so when I started learning about what PCOS is and how complicated it is, um, I got really, really interested. And I also felt that, you know, conventional medicine was not serving women with PCOS well at all. They were basically being told to lose weight or eat less or move more, or here's the birth control pill and come back when you want to get pregnant and we'll give you fertility meds. And so I felt there was really a need um, in the market for someone who could help these women identify their root causes of their symptoms and, you know, get improvements because you can't lose weight if your hormones are imbalanced. So that's why I focus on the root cause piece um, as opposed to the, the outcomes piece. Um, so when I opened my practice, I decided to focus um, exclusively on women's health and primarily on PCOS, but I do work with other hormone conditions and fertility as well. So what do you see are some of the main root causes of PCOS? It's so funny. I, I actually just, um, just launched a new quiz. Um, so it's what's your root cause and you answer questions about your symptoms and it calculates, you know, which is your primary root cause. And I'm seeing about 52% are getting insulin resistance as their main root cause, um, followed by the hormone imbalances, which is about you know a quarter. That doesn't mean if you have insulin resistance, you don't have hormone imbalances, but it, it calculates which one's your primary root cause. So really those are, are the main ones. Um, inflammation, you know, I'm definitely, seeing that and then um, it's pretty rare that the gut imbalances are the primary root cause of someone's symptoms but I am seeing a few come up with with the gut being really the primary cause it's very common and you know there's a lot of gut imbalances inherent in PCOS um, that we end up working on but yeah it's, it's been kind of cool because I'm getting the real-time results of the quiz um, to see, you know, what, what's going on with, with the people who follow me at least. That's so great. I'm going to take the quiz myself and I'll include the link in the show notes because I'm intrigued. Uh, I do have PCOS and I feel like I have like all of the different causes, but I know that inflammation is probably the main reason for me. But yeah, just intrigued to see what the results will say. And you're right that they can all cross over. You can have multiple, but you have to kind of work step by step and, um, having gut issues and having dysbiosis and imbalance of good bacteria in the gut can actually drive insulin resistance. So they mm-hmm. are, they are all interconnected. So with Absolutely. PCOS, I mean, I, yeah, yeah go ahead. So I was going to say similarly, um, you know, you see posts all the time about what type of PCOS do you have? Do you have adrenal or insulin resistance? I don't think I've ever really seen anyone fall neatly into one category only. There's a lot of overlap there um, as well. I mean, sometimes if I if I'm working with someone who has lean PCOS, um, you know, they really will kind of fall into that adrenal only category. But for the most part, it's a combination of factors. Agreed. I I, I totally see that as well. And you can say that with any condition, really. Um, there's never just one root cause. Take migraines, for example. There might be one thing that you need to focus on, um, like put your focus on mostly, but it could be a hidden food sensitivity, lack of sleep, lack of hydration, mineral imbalances, and all of these things kind of add up. So there's never just one thing. So I'm glad that you made that point. Do you feel like PCOS symptoms 
can be reversed completely or is it a condition that we just learn to manage? I think, you know, obviously the condition never goes away. Um, you're always going to have those tendencies like towards insulin resistance, for example. So, you know, you can reverse the symptoms to the point that you are clinically normal on blood tests and you're not, not having symptoms that you're noticing. Um, but I think, you know, the, the tendency is always there. So if you stop doing whatever you're doing to get those things under control, then it can just bounce right back. Absolutely. So let's now discuss some of these dietary subjects in a bit more detail. And I've kind of made a list of things that I get asked. You probably get asked the same questions all the time. And there will obviously be more information in your book. But let's start off with food sensitivities, food intolerances and allergies. So I've had to block certain accounts online because it really infuriates me. <laughs> People saying, oh, just cut gluten and dairy out your diet and that's all you need to do you'll be healed um i do work with people who have like true food sensitivities and it is a driving factor sometimes those sensitivities can be temporary while we're working on their gut health and um promoting um, insulin sensitivity again but where do you stand with food sensitivities are they a big deal for your clients or do you find them not to be like a, a huge um, puzzle piece I don't find them to be a huge factor for the majority of my PCOS clients. Um, I agree with you. It's, it's highly individual, um, you know, whether gluten is going to cause inflammation in someone depends on, you know, whether they're intolerant to it or um, like you've mentioned, um, the state of their gut. Um, if their gut is not in good shape, then they're going to be having more sensitivities to food than they would be if they had, you know, a, a really solid gut barrier um, going on and they weren't getting exposed to, to those antigens from the food. Um, you know, that being said, people do have very valid um, food allergies, sensitivities, and intolerances. I mean, I, I actually fall into the allergic to caffeine category. So it makes me very sad. I like cheese. I miss cheese. Um, but the immediate reaction that I get when I eat cheese is just far too much for, you know, I know it's not good for me to be sneezy and wheezy and covered in hives. So um, yeah, no, I, I'm able to, to get results for my clients without cutting any foods for the most part. Um, the one time I will do you know, kind of deeper digging is if, if the gut's just not healing with the kind of basic gut healing protocols, or if their inflammation is remaining high, despite switching to a more anti-inflammatory diet, then we might look to see, you know, is it something that you're eating every single day that is causing inflammation for you? Um, because, you know, it's really, it's really hard to tell. I mean, you can go by the, the list of, you know, the, the big eight that people are most likely to be allergic to, but it takes a long time to get there. You know, it's like, okay, well, let's try, you know, gluten and then let's try dairy and let's try eggs, egg whites and, you know, peanuts and sort of work through the list that way. Um, but it's trial and error if you do it that way. So that's when, when I'll test to see. And most people have um, intolerances or sensitivities, don't they, as opposed to an allergy. Most people know if they have an allergy because they've had it since childhood or they have obvious symptoms. Um, so am I right that you would go mainly off lab tests and how things are improving kind of with a more well-rounded, balanced diet? Or are there any symptoms that would make you start to think of a hidden food sensitivity? Um, yeah, so like you said, um, with a food allergy, that's a true IgE immune mediated allergy, there's going to be immediate and, you know, potentially life threatening reactions to that with, 
with a sensitivity or an intolerance, that's a little bit different. Um, I actually think the reason why most people start to feel better when they cut out gluten, for example, is not because of the gluten itself. Gluten is a protein, um, but the foods that contain gluten are high in fructans, which is a fermentable carbohydrate. So when you cut that out, like suddenly they are having less bloating and their digestive system feels better, but it's not about the gluten at all. It's actually about the fructans. Um, some red flags for me for gut stuff and food sensitivities are skin reactions. That's always a big red flag for me if someone has sort of persistent eczema or psoriasis or something like that going on, um, rosacea, something, something that's you know, because your gut um, is your primary detox organ. So if that's not functioning well, all, all those toxins have to come out somewhere. So your skin kind of takes over. So if we're seeing that, like, you know, those kind of symptoms that aren't going away, um, that's when I'll question, you know, if there's something deeper going on with gut and food intolerances. I'm sensitive to dairy as well. I wish I could handle cheese and milk because there are some health benefits um, associated as well it's just quick and easy food to um, consume but there's certain camps as well who are like you can never drink dairy it's full of hormones it's going to mess with your hormones and growth factors and estrogens in there what would be your kind of um, response to that yeah, so I do caveat dairy in PCOS with if you're having dairy, you should have full fat dairy. Um, I actually think that low fat dairy is one of the worst things you could do with PCOS because um, the estrogens, the female hormones are stored in the fat in the milk. So when you skim that off and you just leave the liquid, it only leaves the androgens, which are water soluble. So you're basically just pouring more androgens onto a situation that's already imbalanced in androgens. Um, you know, and the studies on dairy, you know, with fertility especially show a benefit with full fat dairy for women. Um, that being said, I really don't think that anybody should be consuming the the Amer American recommendations for dairy, which is three glasses of milk a day. But I don't think most people need to sweat, you know, a little bit of cheese here and there or a yogurt um, here, here or there. Um, and like you said, it's, it's one of the most convenient um, sources of quick protein that you can grab. Um, so when you're, you're taking that out, it just leaves you with fewer options. And what about organic with both dairy products, meat, animal protein, and produce? Because with my clients, I usually do start my clients off on a bit of an elimination diet. So I'm cutting out gluten and dairy just as a 30-day kind of reset just to see how things are. Um, but then we do a reintroduction. We start with organic kind of goat's milk, sheep's dairy to see how they tolerate those first because they're probably less likely to be allergenic. And I always give the caveat that ideally it should um, try, try to make sure it's organic just for the welfare of the animals. Um, and also the nutrient profiles are a lot better with organic. But what are your thoughts on that? There's, again, some people who are like, everything needs to be organic because these pesticides are hormone disruptors they're gonna kind of wreck your gut bacteria so i'm guessing you're kind of somewhere in the middle on more of this balanced plan but give me your thoughts yeah so i think it's a it's a personal decision for sure um i i'm very fortunate and privileged to be able to prioritize that in my life that um you know i may not may not make a super extra effort to, to buy organic everything in the produce department, but when it comes to humane treatment of animals and quality animal proteins, um, that's where I do spend the extra money um, to get. I, I actually prioritize grass-fed or local over or yeah, certified mm -hmm. organic. Um, you know, I have, I have friends who are local who own a bison farm, for example, and they're not certified organic because it's just too expensive for a small farm to do. 
Um, but you know, I can I can drive by their house and see the bison out eating grass in the field, and there's some pretty happy, well treated bison. So I feel really comfortable with that. Um, you know, that being said, I never force my um, personal choices on to my clients, and you know, especially not in my my recommendations um, on my platforms, my social media platforms and my books, because um, not everybody has that option. And I think when it comes to PCOS, um, you know, based on the most common root cause, the most important thing when it comes to a diet for PCOS is blood sugar balance. And in order to do that, you need to have adequate, high quality protein. Um, and so, so meat, eggs, dairy are, are one of the quickest sources of that um, and the, the best used by our body. So I would rather have them have, you know, conventional um, animal products if they can't afford organic. Um, but when it comes to the nutrition profile, I do, I do prioritize you know, prioritize grass fed over organic. It could be organic corn fed and that's going to be higher in those inflammatory omega-6s versus grass fed, which has more of the anti-inflammatory omega-3s. But when you're looking, and when you're actually looking at animal products like meat, the, the difference is really marginal in the amounts. Um, you know, I, I really tried to get them to to prioritize fresh and not processed, um, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm really big into increasing my client's protein intake as well, because um, either people aren't eating any protein at a meal or so they're just having a piece of fruit for their breakfast. I know there's like minor amounts of protein in there or they're eating not so great types, some more of the processed type of protein, like the Beyond Burgers, they'll spend however much on those things, but I'd rather them get some organ meats that cost, what, a few dollars, or some eggs, some pasteurized eggs. Do you have any mm -hmm. thoughts on the more plant-based vegan types of proteins versus animal proteins, so vegetarian versus omnivorous diets for PCOS women? Yeah, I actually, I find a 100% plant-based diet very difficult to achieve the protein levels that I recommend for blood sugar balance. Um, it's possible, but you're going to be adding a lot of things like pea protein and hemp seeds to your foods to get to those levels. I totally agree with you. Um, I see a lot of, you know, what I call kind of junk food vegetarians who are eating, you know, I don't, do you, do you guys have Morningstar there? Morningstar is a really big no. brand here and it's all like soy protein. Well, we might do. I, I don't go down those kind of aisles in the supermarket, so I'm not really sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is similar to the Beyond Burger or the Impossible Burger. You know, they're they're filled with inflammatory fats and food additives and they're not real food. Um and like you said, when you compare them price um ounce for ounce, um the organic ground beef is actually much cheaper compared to a processed impossible burger. Um, so yeah, I get I get questions a lot about well, what can I eat if I'm vegan and do you recommend it? And why don't you include more recipes in your course and your book that are vegan? I do have some um, plant-based meals in the book, mostly breakfast. Um, but I would rather they eat a, at least a little bit of eggs and fish, um, seafood, um, if if that's an option for them. And I understand there's some, you know, some religions, especially that prohibit animal products. Um, and I, I actually was a vegetarian or a pescatarian for a really long time. But, um, you know, the, at, at a certain point, you have to decide whether you're going to put your health above anything else. And, you know, that's kind of what happened when I started eating meat again, was I had to decide that my health was more important than you know, my feelings about a particular topic. Mm -hmm. And are there any minimums or maximums in terms of grams of protein? I'm, I'm not big on like counting macronutrients or anything like that, but I know that some of the listeners are and they need like a rough guide 
how much should they be shooting for every day? Yeah, I generally recommend using a plate sort of model where half your plate is made up of non-starchy vegetables, one quarter of your plate is protein, a concentrated source of protein, and one quarter of your plate is a starch or a carb. Um, you know, in terms of grams, I have my clients shoot for 25 to 30 grams of protein per meal or around eight to 10 for a snack um, to get them to the level. Most people do great with dinner. Um, a lot of people do fine with lunch for the most part where they really fall short is breakfast. And that's the meal that, that sets the tone for the whole day. So often, um, you know, just working on that and increasing protein consumption at breakfast is, you know, what makes the biggest difference for how they feel throughout the rest of the day in terms of cravings and energy. Yeah, the breakfast is the most important meal, in my opinion, and it really influences how your body responds to the other meals as well. So if you start off on a bad foot, then despite what you're eating, your blood sugar may be like crazy, up, ups and downs. And if you're experiencing like the 4 p.m. slump, that's very common. It may not be that you didn't eat enough at lunch. It, it probably is your breakfast or your sleep the day before. So always kind of look back and see what may be playing a role, especially if it's kind of common and it's a daily occurrence. Absolutely. I mean, I don't have PCOS. And, you know, if I were to eat pancakes for breakfast, um, I would just be you know, basically screwed for the rest of the day. I would yeah. just want pizza and then I would want nachos and then I would want cookies and it would not be a good day. <laughs> that was me. I used to have um, either toast in the morning or I'd have a big bowl of oats. And then I was like, oh, I'm being so healthy. Um, I'm eating my whole grain toast. I'm eating my oatmeal. And then an hour later, I was absolutely ravenous. And I'm like, oh, it must be that I have a fast metabolism. And I, I'm just one of those constant grazers. But when I swap that to um, a higher protein, higher fat breakfast, lowering carbs, I could go five, six, seven hours without even thinking about food. So that just shows. Mm -hmm. And people making that one change, they're like, oh my God, you've changed my life. <laughs> like the first recommendation Absolutely. you made, you're like, oh, I don't need you anymore. Everything's good. <laughs> yeah, no, that's where I start them too. And that's, that's actually the basis of the book is my protein fat fiber method we actually don't talk about carbs at all in the beginning with my clients or in my course um, I just want them to no matter what they have on their plate they have to add protein fat and fiber and then you know as we're working together and they really get the hang of that because that you know once they get that one thing and they master it it's like everything is so much easier um, and then we tweak it you know as we're working together longer because you know, carb tolerance is so individual. Some people do better with a little more carbs. You know, I've had clients who weren't eating carbs. They were having a salad with fish or, you know, turkey for lunch. And um, we add a little bit of quinoa and suddenly they're, you know, have all this energy. I'm, I'm more like you. I'm more the opposite where if I had a bowl of oats in the morning, I'm just, I'm done for, you know, I just want to go back to bed. <laughs> So how does someone find their carb tolerance? Obviously your courses and your book will give a better explanation, but from what I just heard, you start off on a lower, depending on the person, but mainly a lower carbohydrate diet. And then you try and increase until you notice weight gain or negative symptoms. Is that right? Um, it's more, I have an experiment with the amount and the timing. Um, so we start with that plate method as, as the, you know, starting point where, you know, try to keep your, your starches to a quarter of your plate on any given meal. Um, and then we kind of, you know, we'll increase that, you know, whether that's a half a cup for someone or it's, it's up to a full cup. Um, we'll play around with that. We'll play around with, you know, try having starch at breakfast versus not and see how you feel. Same with lunch. Um, you know, on, on the other hand, I'm the type of person, if I don't have a starch with dinner, that's for sure. Those are the nights when I'm like, do we have ice cream? Yeah. You know, and I'm scrounging in the cabinet. So well, you wake up at 3am, kind of, unable to go back to sleep. 
That's another one. Yeah, because you're, you're hungry. Um, so we really play around with that. And there are so many things that affect how many carbs you need. Like you said, how much you slept the night before, where you are in your menstrual cycle affects how many carbs you need. Um, whether you exercised yesterday um, or not, you know, it all impacts what you need to stay satisfied the next day. So, um, yeah, it's individual and it kind of changes day by day. I always say men are like every day is Groundhog Day for them because <laughs> their hormones are on a 24-hour cycle. But for us, you know, it's different depending on what day of the month it is. <laughs> totally. And um, what types, what are some of your favorite um, starches or carbs to recommend? Yeah, I love beans for PCOS, any sort of legumes or beans. Um, there actually are some, some studies on the benefits of legumes in PCOS. Um, they help balance blood sugar. They're a nice, slow digesting carb. They're high in fiber. Um, I think those are one of the best choices you could make. Um, you know, the, the more you can incorporate slow whole grains, um, potatoes, root vegetables, that kind of thing. Um, but I also tell clients not to, you know, really sweat the occasional fun carb choice. Um, or, you know, I have clients who just culturally grew up eating white rice and that's what they prefer and it's what they, you know, are used to. Um, and it's fine as long as they have that protein, fat fiber on their plate to, to slow down the impact of that carb. And how do you balance those things? So eating for enjoyment and um, socializing versus trying to get your hormones under control and prepare for pregnancy or deal with an, um, a concurrent autoimmune condition as well? Because there is that fine line, isn't there? Yeah, so I am, um, you know, I, I look, when I think about a healthy diet, I think about the big picture. Um, so think about the fact that you get three meals and one to two snacks a day times seven. So when you're looking at a week, like how many of those meals conform to that protein, fat, fiber method? Um, you know, how many treats did you include? Um, I talk about um, it when it comes to sugar. Um, I use the, the World Health Organization recommendations, um, which is 5%. Of, of daily calories can come from added sugars. So I, I kind of refer to that as your sugar budget for the day. So, so it, you know, on a 2000 calorie a day diet, you get up to 25 grams of added sugar. So that's a little bit of wiggle room and you can kind of decide how you want to, you know, spend that budget over the course of the day. Um, you know, you can have a little treat with lunch or you can have a little dessert after dinner or, you don't have to worry about the three grams of sugar in the salad dressing that you like, um, those kind of things. Um, on the other hand, if you're looking at it from that perspective, it's like one Starbucks drink can blow your budget for two whole days, mm -hmm. you know? So it's really, it's a choice, you know, you get to decide how to spend it. Um, you know, I, I do strongly believe, I mean, I grew up in an Italian family, so food is, you know, paramount. Food is how you love someone in an Italian family. Um, so I, you know, very strongly believe that we should have things that are traditional to our families and holidays and things like that. The problem is when every day turns into that holiday. Yeah, good point. So the third <laughs> component of your um, blood sugar meal would be the fats and mm -hmm. I'm a lover of healthy fats and I've found that those on a low fat diet often have wacky hormones that are all over the place so how does the the fat that we eat affect our hormonal health and why is healthy fat so beneficial for PCOS yeah, so we actually need fat um, we need cholesterol in order to make hormones in the first place um, when it comes to choosing fats for PCOS, um, we try to focus on the anti-inflammatory fats, the ones that are higher in omega-3s or um, olive oils, um, avocados, avocado oil, nuts, 
you know, basically those Mediterranean type of fats, salmon, sardines, those are all really beneficial fats for PCOS. Um, what we try to limit are those um, inflammatory omega-6s. So the processed vegetable oils, things that you know, are used to fry foods in restaurants. That's the kind of fat that should be avoided. Um, I do think there there needs to be a certain amount of natural saturated fat, but not overdoing it when it comes to PCOS. Like, I don't think coconut oil is a health food um, by any means, and especially not when it comes for, to PCOS, but I I don't necessarily recommend, you know, eliminating it. It just should be part of a range of fats that you include daily. And for what reason is that? Is that the the studies that show the increase of um, LPS or endotoxin? Um, more so the the ones that show its impact on um, cholesterol, which mm. you know it's, it's already the dyslipidemia is already common in PCOS and, and coconut oil can raise LDL, um, which, you know, usually we're already looking at a, an imbalanced cholesterol profile in someone with PCOS. When you were saying as well, trying to eat locally and eat what your ancestors ate, like I'm in the UK, there's no way we were getting coconuts even 50 years ago. Like we're now just eating like coconuts and avocado and bananas and pineapples shipped from Peru or wherever so we should be eating like kind of in my area the butter the ghee the dairy products um things that we would have had access to yeah I'm actually glad you mentioned that because I I forgot to mention that when we were talking about dairy is I I really find that ethnicity is is more important than anything when it comes to determining how well someone's going to handle dairy and people whose ancestors are from northern europe do much much better on dairy than someone like me from you know southern europe or um you know africa or asian countries um they tend to not do as well with the lactose portion of the dairy um, and i recently guys, did my I genetics mean... yeah <laughs> and it showed that i had the it's actually a genetic mutation isn't it that allows you to continue to digest dairy so i actually have the genetic mutation meaning that i'm one of those people who should be able to tolerate dairy um into adulthood that said i can at the moment because my gut's a little bit messed up and um but that's a good sign that hopefully when i address all these things that might be something i can reintroduce so genetics aren't everything but they're a good they give good insight yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting. I, I feel like, you know, with the genetic piece of things, we're, we're still in the beginning of, of understanding what it all means. And, you know, just because you have a gene snap doesn't mean it's expressing itself mm -hmm. either. So the next thing I want to talk about is calorie counting and macronutrient tracking. So I'm going to lump them together because um, I don't really do either of these with my clients, but I understand again that some people like to come from that side of things, especially if they're working out, want to make sure that they're eating enough or recovering from um, something like hypothalamic amenorrhea. They need to make sure that they're eating enough food. So do you use these in your practice? What, uh, what are your thoughts on calories? Do we need to pay any attention to them or can we just eat healthily and our weight will just regulate on its own? Yeah, so I don't recommend tracking um, calories. I just, um, you know, as someone who I was a dance major the first time around in school and was very conscious of calories, I, I still have, you know, the library in my brain of being able to look at a food and know exactly how many calories it has. Um, I just think it's, it's time spent better elsewhere <laughs> um you know it actually takes a really long time if you are tracking i i did it i'll do it for an experiment occasionally or i'll do it um i'll recommend it with my clients like you said if i suspect that a client's actually not eating enough i'll have them track for three days just to to kind of see um, but it's very time consuming to find all the foods and enter them incorrectly and i just i think that time is better spent taking a walk or you know taking a nap or 
doing something that you find enjoyable um, rather than obsessing over numbers. Um, calories are, you know, the calories in, calories out is old science. Um, it only works in the context of a laboratory, not in the context of a human body that has hormones and bioindividuality. So I, I just don't recommend it. Um, you know, if weight is an issue, you know, we can't pretend that calories don't exist, <laughs> um, you know, and, and even healthy foods. So, so I do kind of recommend with, with things that it's easy to go overboard on, that's where you want to kind of portion it out for yourself. So something like, for example, nuts, you know, it's really easy to eat 800 calories of nuts if you're just sitting there with the bag open. Um, so if weight's a concern, then you might want to portion those out, put them in a little bowl, um, you know, pair them with something else so that they're more filling. Um, because yeah, those are a really concentrated energy source. Um, in terms of macros, um, you know, again, I don't have people count. Um, when you do the plate method, um, it kind of comes out to be a very balanced approach. So, mm -hmm. you know, the studies on, you know, quote unquote, low carb diets in PCOS, when you look at what they were actually eating, it was around 40% of, of their calories coming from carbs. So I feel like 40% is not actually, a you know, it's not a keto diet. It's not a very low carb diet. I think that's a reasonable approach. Um, so, you know, when, when you're balancing your plate and your plate method, it, it kind of automatically sorts out to be that around 40% carbs, you know, at least 30% protein, you know, 25, 30% protein, and then the rest from fat. So, um, you know, I really do try to approach recipes and meal planning from that balanced perspective. Like, okay, do I have enough of each of these things? Great. And what about fasting or time-restricted eating? So that's a big trend at the moment. There are also health benefits associated, increased autophagy, um, immune support, obviously resting, um, allowing the digestive system to heal and repair. So women with PCOS are obviously jumping at that because they think, oh, it may help with weight loss. It may help with insulin sensitivity. But I've seen it as well become more of a stress and a strain on the thyroid and the adrenals. Have you seen the same? Absolutely. Um, I will say probably more than half of my clients come to me not eating breakfast. Mm. So if intermittent fasting were going yeah. to work, <laughs> it would have worked, right? Um, there's a couple of things. Um, I do, I do think, you know, obviously the, the science is emerging on the benefits of fasting in terms of especially longevity and aging and, you know, the ability for the cells to clear debris and, you know, prevent cancer and all of those things. And, you know, there is the research on, um, insulin, you know, resistance improving with fasting as well. Um, I don't recommend it to women of reproductive age because our hormone systems are so sensitive to um, scarcity um, that you know it can actually damage us and like you said there's also that component where um, it adds stress we have you know tons of studies um, you know with the Muslim population who fasts for Ramadan every year you know there's studies showing that the cortisol rem remains elevated for months after that, that 40 days of fasting. Um, so it's, you know, if you have an adrenal component to your PCOS, fasting is not going to do you any favors and it's not going to do you any favors when it comes to your sex hormones. And, you know, there, there are some animal studies showing actual um, uh, over, ovary shrinkage in mice who were fasted. So, you know, it's like, I think it's not a good thing. Um, I don't know. I don't really work too much with the postmenopausal PCOS population, but I do wonder if maybe that might be a place where you could play around with it if you're not in a place where you're in a high stress situation. But I mean, so many of us are just, we just live in a high stress 
situation. So I don't know if you want to move to a cabin in the woods and, <laughs> and try intermittent fasting. Sure. Maybe. <laughs> um, I also think that people are doing it wrong. Um, I think that our bodies were meant to eat um, with the sun. Our circadian rhythm should align with the sun. So we should eat when we wake up first thing in the morning with the light. We should stop eating when it gets dark. And that should be our time. I don't consider, you know, if you eat dinner at 7 p.m. and then breakfast at 7 p.m., I don't consider 12 hours a fast at all. Um, I think once you start going beyond that, then that's considered, you know, fasting. Um, but yeah, I don't recommend it. <laughs> totally agree. And probably 50% of the women that you said who don't have breakfast, I bet their energy isn't great. And they just think, oh, my body will just create energy from thinner. They're like, mm -hmm. why don't you just try having breakfast? Maybe that will help. Absolutely. And I, you know, I also, as a follow-up, I get the question all the time because women um, often are not hungry when they mm -hmm. wake up. And so they, they have trouble getting breakfast in. And, you know, I would say, look at your coffee consumption. <laughs> um, are you drinking too much coffee? And that's um, blunting your appetite. Um, I would look at how late you're eating at night. Um, if you're not waking up hungry, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of things you can do, you know, and start small with incorporating breakfast and build from there, but, but just get eating in the morning. It's, it's one of the best things you could do for your PCOS. And they will find after a while that that appetite does come back, but adrenaline, what, re what is released when you're fasting, it probably makes you feel good. It gives you a bit of a buzz, but that is also suppressing your appetite. So it's kind of um, tricking you a little bit into thinking that everything's fine, but then you crash later on or your period that month is really long and all over the place. So that's why people think that they're doing fine without breakfast, but when they start to add it in, they're like, oh my God, this has changed my life. <laughs> I know, it's a game changer. What I want to talk about lastly is the term like superfoods or is there any particular nutrients that women with PCOS should pay special attention to? Yeah, so superfood, you know, I feel I must say as a registered dietitian, superfood is actually a marketing term. There's no definition of what a superfood is. Um, in my book, I, t I include um, what I call PCOS power foods. And what those are, are foods that have some evidence that it helps with some aspects of PCOS. So um, for example, cinnamon, um, there's a lot of studies that show that cinnamon can help lower blood sugar after a meal. So incorporating cinnamon may help, you know, lower your blood sugar over time. I don't recommend supplements. It's, you know, something you could easily add to your food and the amount that you have to add is not a lot. Um, you know, foods like ginger that are potent anti-inflammatories um, have that extra benefit for PCOS. Um, you know, going back to the, the gluten thing, um, barley is actually a PCOS power food because that's another one that's got a lot of studies showing how powerful it is at lowering blood sugar um, to the point where it's recommended that diabetics um, who are on medications not eat barley because it can, you know, lower their blood sugar too much if they're on medications. Um, so, you know, there, there are foods that can, you know, affect hormone balances, inflammation, insulin resistance, and then also, you know, the gut health. So eating um, fermented foods that have live probiotics in them, eating uh, lots of fruits and vegetables that have prebiotic fibers in them to feed your healthy gut bacteria. Um, those are all, you know, PCOS power foods that, you know, again, we kind of do it in stages when I'm working with someone. It's like we start with protein, fat, fiber, then we get them eating breakfast, then we kind of you know, tweak their carb tolerance, then we start adding these foods that, you know, actually may, may have an impact on PCOS. Um, spearmint, spearmint tea is a big one too, um, that can, can lower testosterone. So, um, yeah, so I include all of those things in, in my book, but these are all things you can include in a, a healthy balanced diet easily. 
I like that phased approach as well because that allows it to become more of a habit and a lifestyle rather than a 30-day diet plan that you perfect and do amazingly well and then you just go back to eating the junk that you were previously. I always tell people, um, would you believe that my busiest month in my nutrition practice is actually February Mm -hmm. Um, because everyone went on a crazy diet in January and then basically hit February 1st, ate everything in sight for two weeks and then decided I need to do something else. (laughs) I need to figure out a better way. Um, And that's when my phone is ringing off the hook when, when people are like, okay, clearly my cleanse or my, you know, whole 30 or my keto didn't work. So there has Mm -hmm. to be something else. So I want to finish up with just a few more questions about you personally and how you stay healthy. So the first one is what's your go-to breakfast? And maybe there's a recipe or an idea that's in your book that you want to share. Yeah. So I basically have two. Um, I try to think as little as possible (laughs) in the morning. It's like, I just need to grab it and make it happen. Um, so if it's warm out, um, like now I'm generally going for a smoothie. My go-to smoothie is non-dairy milk, a protein powder, a frozen fruit, usually blueberries. Today it was mangoes. Um, I'll add some flax seeds and then I'll add some fat, which is either, um, nut butter or, um, lately with the, the quarantine and, you know, pantry foods, I've been freezing avocados before mm-hmm. they go too bad. So I'll grab like an avocado quarter and throw that. Um, my other go-to breakfast is a veggie egg scramble. Um, so I, I usually start with actually frozen cauliflower rice and I saute that with, um, with olive oil and then I throw in whatever veggies are in the fridge. So could be peppers, could be kale, could be anything. And then I just scramble some eggs in. Um, In the book, I have a lot of, um, you know, my favorite kind of breakfast for when I'm, I'm working or I'm on the go, which are, you know, things you can eat with one hand in the car. (laughs) So um, things like egg muffins, or there's a lot of um, high protein, high fiber muffin recipes in the book that you can grab and go, but there, there's a separate section. Um, there's a bonus smoothie section as well. So if that works better for you, you could do that as well. Great. Yes, really smoothies. Nice. Yeah, smoothies are my go-to as well. Just an easy way to get a ton of things in, easy to digest, quick and nutritious, which is why I love. Is mm-hmm. there one food, herb, nutrient supplement that you just couldn't live without? Oh, it's kind of a toss up between avocados um, and sushi that contains avocados. Um, <laughs> actually, we, we haven't really, we haven't done takeout since March, since, we, you know, the stay at home orders and, and I'm really missing sushi right now. Um, and, and the avocados is hard too with the timing with trying not to yeah. shop too often it's Mm -hmm. like I either have none or I have five ripe ones at a time um I have been buying those little individual guacamole packs Mm -hmm. to kind of get me through the times when we have no avocados and avocados are tricky as it is like one minute they're perfect the next minute they're brown so yeah it's a it's Mm -hmm. a struggle the struggle is real really is a first world problem though I must say And again, like I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm in New England, so we, if they're not local to me, I really wish we could have an avocado tree in the backyard. I could just walk out and get them, but. I wish was, I wish that was the case here as well, but that's not going to happen. We have apple trees. Maybe we can have more apples. (laughs) What's one thing that you do daily to stay in hormonal harmony? I really prioritize sleep. Um, I have to say sleep is, is I've found sleep to be the biggest factor when it comes to my own um, hormone health. So I'm pretty religious about it. I'm in bed by 10 p.m. at the latest. We actually have a rule with my husband. He's not allowed to ask me any questions after 10 p.m. because um, it gets me too too stressed. Um, and then I, I try to you know get up when I wake up naturally, which is usually 
you know, six, between six and seven. So um, that one thing is really what I focus on the most. Great. And then last question, Melissa, is where can people find more from you online? And tell us a bit more about your book. Yeah, so my website is thehormonedietitian.com, and I do have a lot of articles there about PCOS. Um, they can also find me on Instagram. It's the.hormone.dietitian um, on Instagram. And then the book is being released tomorrow. I'm super excited. It is called A Balanced Approach to PCOS, and it is 16 weeks of meal plans um, and recipes for women with PCOS. So there's a little bit of background information about the root causes and how the, this way of eating addresses those root causes. And then the recipes are organized by season. So um, there's four weeks for each. So winter, spring, summer, fall. Um, each week has a featured protein, fat, fiber, and PCOS power food. Um, so you can prep ahead if you want to, or you could just, you know, pick one or two and cook them. But if you wanted to prep ahead, um, you know, the recipes use similar ingredients so that you can minimize your, your cooking time and shopping. Um, and then there, there are some bonus recipes as well. I mentioned the smoothies. There's also snacks and desserts because um, you do need a PCOS treat every Absolutely. so often. And I love that mm -hmm. whole concept of the seasonal eating, um, the meal prep aspect. So it sounds like you've like put so many things together and it's probably what your clients have been asking for for years. And my clients know that I'm not the best at formulating recipes. I just outsource to other recipe books and things. So yours will be one of the main ones that I'm going to refer to from now onwards because I just say, um, just focus on the proteins, fats, and carbs. I just give them a list of foods, but they're like, please, we need, we need like good recipes. I'm very basic. I just have like my meat, my vegetables, my fats, but some people, they want to make the, the recipes and they miss that from what they were eating previously. So I think you've solved one of my problems and yeah, I want to thank you for Great. that. <laughs> thank you. It's really funny. When I first started my website, um, I thought, you know, I needed to do these fancy recipes for people. And then I was just realizing, you know, the more you work with people, it's like people are not cooking. People don't have time to cook. So once I made the switch to like, oh, here's a sheet pan dinner you can make in 20 minutes. Um, you know, it's so much easier to do that kind of thing. And myself included, you know, I don't have an hour to spend making a recipe on a weeknight so um, I'm all about the the quickest way to getting healthy food in my mouth basically and they're also very family friendly as well because some of these mm -hmm. PCOS plans that I see online is just like a boring salad and you have to cook separately to your family and eat different foods so it sounds like it's very adaptable yeah, I also, I should mention each week I have a tip on um, how to increase the carbs, for example. So like when I was cooking them for myself and my, you know, husband who does obviously does not have PCOS, I would, I would double the carbs for him. So mm -hmm. um, there's guidance in each of the weeks on how to do that. Or if you're someone who's super active and you need more carbs, um, you know, so there are tips and tricks in each week, how to make each week. Um, you know, if it is a week that contains gluten, how to make it gluten-free, how to make it dairy-free, etc. And am I right that it's available in all regular places, Amazon? Is it in, obviously, it's a little bit of an issue with the book um, kind of shops at the moment. Is that right? Yes. So I believe um, Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, and IndieBound, and I believe as of August 25th, the digital copy will be. Mm -hmm available um, for people who like to use their their tablet in the kitchen for cookbooks as well perfect so i'm going to link to all of those things in the episode show notes for everyone to um, check out and thank you Melissa, for your time it's been great connecting with you and um yeah i appreciate you spending your time with us and sharing your knowledge on pcos thank you so much I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you would love a free copy of my hormone-friendly recipes guide, please leave me a rating and review and I will email you a copy as a thank you gift.
All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review and send it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. This guide contains delicious gluten, dairy, grain, and refined sugar-free recipes, and all the meals contain specific hormone superfoods. Don't worry, there are no boring salad recipes included. Come and say hi over on Instagram at Viva Natural Health, as I share a ton of free content every day, and you can get to know more about me and how I stay hormonally healthy. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk, for my blog and many free guides, which cover everything from clearing acne to gut health and hair loss. If you're ready to identify and address the root causes of your hormonal issues, whether that's acne, PMS, PCOS, hair loss, or problematic periods, take that first step today and apply for an enrollment call on my website. We'll use this call to discuss the steps that you need to take in order to achieve hormonal harmony and how I could help you get there. See you back here next week for another episode.